This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Apostle Paul admonished Timothy to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And that's really God's admonishment to every listener today. If you know Christ is your Savior, we are to learn God's word. We are to rightly divide it, and we're to be able to make a defense for the hope that's within us. So if you're new to the 88.7 broadcast here that we call the Bible Line for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. And so if there's a particular uh, issue that you're facing in your life or ministry or your study of God's Word and you have a question that we might be able to help you with, all you need to do is pick up the phone locally. It's 843 525 0089, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible Line, at WAGP.net. We've been gone for a few weeks with uh, issues going on uh, that kept Rick and I away from here, but we're glad to be back live here in the studio today and look forward to hearing from some of our listeners. But a number of questions have come in, more than we can probably answer in one broadcast. But let's go ahead and we'll get started, Rick. All right, Pastor. Well, last Wednesday evening, you gave a, an interesting and very uh, enlightening presentation about the Lord's table, and somebody attended and they uh, asked the following question. They write, I know you know John six fifty three through 66, and Protestants will say this is a symbol, even though Jesus said it five times in just this one passage very plainly regarding the blood, the body and the blood of of Christ in the Eucharist, the wine and the bread. And uh, he said this, uh, uh, he, he would like to know what makes it a symbol or a metaphor. He'd like to know that distinction. He says, I know that he speaks that way often in saying things like, I am the gate, I am the vine, I am the shepherd. Jesus wasn't literally any of those things, and everyone knew it, and it was no big deal when he said stuff like that. But this is different. When Jesus said this, people were bothered, people were upset and grumbled among themselves. People left Jesus. Disciples who had left their homes and families to follow him left over this teaching. Would they get so offended over a symbol they would leave Jesus, who they had previously given everything to follow because he was speaking symbolically again? They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Why would a symbolic metaphor be hard for them to accept? If they can accept him being a gate or a vine symbolically, surely they can handle him symbolically being bread. Jesus said, does this offend you? Why would a metaphor be offensive? Jesus knew which ones would believe and which ones wouldn't believe, and the ones who wouldn't believe left. And Jesus begins it with very truly I say to you, or truly, truly, or amen, amen, depending on the version you read. Doesn't that mean that what he follows up with is sure truth? I know that this is debated among scholars and theologians since Reformation time and maybe even before that, and it's nothing new. Everyone has their own version they believe to be true. But I'm just not understanding why we say it's a symbol. What in that passage is the key to it being a symbol 
And why would some of the disciples and his followers be so upset and leave him over if it weren't literal? So it's really two questions. What qualifies it as a symbol and why the outrage over a symbol? Well, it's a fair question, and um, this person who wrote this, uh, they didn't come to uh, last week where I indeed addressed the subject of the Lord's table. So as a starting point, my suggestion would be that you go online, you can go to uh, communitybiblechurch.us, or you can go on YouTube or wherever, and you can listen to the message entitled The Lord's Supper. And it's an important message because what I do is I walk through the history of uh, the church in terms of how it has been, you know, understood. The the church fathers, by the way, who lived closest to the apostles, and um, I wanted to, you know, spend maybe three weeks just on the issue, but uh, one of our pastors got sick and it was kind of a last minute thing, but I made a 14-page handout that people received uh, last Wednesday night uh, for them to uh, study this issue in great depth and detail. So it's an important, important issue. But you make some. So I'm saying all that to say that uh, a starting point would be to listen to the message, because in the message I, I talk about well, what do we mean by the Lord's Supper <clears throat> versus um, communion or the Eucharist? And the most common name, of course, is communion. But the two principal names given in Scripture is the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Table. Uh, You get into trouble when a group or a people begin to use the term sacrament whenever a church or a pastor typically refers to the Lord's Table in a sacramental sense. They're infusing more into uh, what the Scripture actually says. But when you take all the air out of the balloon— uh, there are some several positions that have been held in the history of the church, and one is what the Catholic Church teaches. It's called transubstantiation. The uh, prefix trans, trans means to change, and so they are arguing for a real change in the substance. They argue it's a miracle, and I quoted from uh, the Roman Catholic catechisms that the, uh, the Eucharist, as they call it, the uh, cup— uh, is uh, retains its same smell, taste, and whatever, so that people can participate in it. But they argue that when the priest at a particular time holds the host with the cup and he raises it up and says, this is my body, this is my blood, that it is literally changed into the body and blood of Christ. Uh, that's not true. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. None of the early church fathers espoused that. And so, again, these that live closest— to the apostles, not always 100% true, but as a general principle, you would think that those who lived closest to the apostles would best understand their teaching, and none of them held this view. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't really begin until around 575 A.D. Now, they would say they go back to the first Pope Peter, but it's a very silly argument, and any thinking person who knows just a little bit of Scripture— Uh, would know that that's not true, but they were able to pull it off for the simple fact that the Bible for its first thousand years primarily was only available in Latin, and unless you were a scholar, you couldn't read it, and so you were dependent on the church to read the Bible for you. Then we looked at consubstantiation, then we looked at the spiritual view, and we looked at the memorial view. Uh, So you make an, an assumption here that's not actually accurate, 
Uh, you speak here of disciples who left everything, their homes and their families, to follow him. And uh, it's easy to come to that conclusion and that there's an assumption that when you see the word disciple, you're describing or what's being described is a committed believer. The word mathetes is the Greek word disciple, and it just means a learner. And sometimes uh, a person who is just uh, following after Christ, wanting to learn what he had to say, was called a disciple. But the fact that every person who's dubbed a disciple in the New Testament is not a true believer is clear from a number of New Testament passages. For instance, if you were to turn over to John chapter 8, um, Jesus is talking about, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they say, well, we've never been enslaved. What do you mean, be made free? Uh, we're Abraham's children. And Jesus said, if you did the deeds of Abraham, then um, you would really give evidence that you were you had the kind of faith. And, and so these people in John 8 are called disciples. They are learners. And yet Jesus said they did not have the same kind of faith that Abraham has. And by the time he's done with his dialogue with them, he indicts them by saying, your father is the devil. So clearly not believers, clearly not people who knew and loved Christ. And at the end of the discourse, it says they picked up stones, John eight fifty nine to throw at him. Uh, so they wanted to kill him. So when you come to uh, John chapter 6, and interestingly, the um, miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 is contained in all four Gospels. What's unique to John's Gospel is the bread of life discourse that follows. And so the next morning, he goes across the lake, across the Sea of Galilee, and he is in Capernaum, and he's in the synagogue there. Some of you have uh, been with me to Israel, and that's like a Class A spot. You are literally in the synagogue. It's just a floor with an open building, but the ruins have a first-century synagogue that Jesus actually preached in. And it's in that synagogue that a lot of people really get bent out of shape, and uh, they're upset. And why would they be upset? Again, I cover this in detail, and so my suggestion would be for you to listen to that message Um, one of the reasons they would be upset is because God had forbade a Jew to drink blood. And by the way, he reaffirmed that truth in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, James writes a letter, and twice over in Acts 15, it's very specific that you are not to drink blood, and that was a practice that many Gentiles had adopted, and God found that offensive. That was a moral issue, And I have a whole message on that if you're interested for my series on the book of Acts. Um, When then you say, when he begins, truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen, that what follows up is a sure truth. Well, it's all truth that Jesus spoke. He is the truth. Every single word he spoke was absolute truth. But I think what you mean to say is that when he said, verily, verily, amen, amen, literally, the Greek says, amen, amen. Uh, he's basically saying, listen up, because what I'm about to say is very, very, very important. But the fact that it is not literally the body and blood of Christ, and again, I cover this in depth. I spend an hour on it. You've got a 14-page detailed handout with a lot of supplementary scripture that I suggest that you get and read through. Um, 
I think you will see that um, Jesus is not violating what Moses had written, what James affirmed in Acts 15. So you know right off, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that it cannot refer to the literal body and blood of Christ, that it must be symbolic. And you yourself make a good point here when Jesus said, I am the door, I'm the bread of life. He didn't mean he was a four-by-six door, that he was a loaf of bread. Very often he spoke metaphorically. And even within this passage itself that he is speaking metaphorically is affirmed because he said, unless you you know, eat of my body and drink of my blood, you'll have no life. And, um, and yet then by the end of the discourse, he makes it very, very clear. It says these things, um, he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, therefore many of the disciples learners, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus conscious that his disciples grumbled at him said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then, if you see the son of man ascending to where he was before, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So Jesus is very pinpointed that eating some piece of bread and drinking some juice out of a cup is not what gives life, but the Spirit gives life. And, of course, uh, then he will later turn to the disciples at verse 66 as a result of this Many of his disciples, those people who are learning, and again, the term is not always used of a genuine believer. So context is everything. In Acts 19, for instance, Paul meets some disciples of John who had not yet believed in Jesus. They had uh, heard the message when they were in Jerusalem and probably no doubt for one of the three required uh, festivals that every pious Jew must attend that Deuteronomy speaks of, and they heard John preach and then left, and they're back in Ephesus, and they didn't know that Jesus actually fulfilled what John had been preaching of. They're called disciples, yet they had not yet believed in Jesus. Well, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, now he's turning to the twelve, you do not want to go also, do you? Now, remember, he's, in the, uh, he's been in the next day in the synagogue in Capernaum. If you go to the synagogue in Capernaum, you can see the first century floor underneath a fourth century floor. But the first century synagogue that Jesus preached in probably would have been able to have sat about 100 people. So remember, he's feeding 20,000 the day before, 5,000 men, heads of household, excluding women and children, the next day, it's trimmed even more. We're only 100 come. Jesus said, well, look, you're, you're following me when he fed them because, um, you know, you like the food, you like the entertainment, you, you're, you're watching the miracles, you are, uh, have full stomachs. But he makes it very clear the next day when there's probably about 100 in the synagogue who are still wanting to learn from him that not all of them are believers. And then finally he turns to the 12 And he says, are you guys going to leave too? And these are real disciples. And Peter steps up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But this family asks an excellent question. And what I might suggest that you do, if you really want to sort through some of these Roman Catholic issues, because this is a family based on the email that's been sent, who have been saved out of a Catholic background, and they have a number of family and friends who are into Catholicism. 
And you, what you want to do is you want to find out, A, what the Roman Church teaches, and B, what the Bible says. Now, in fairness to Roman Catholics, they are often dumped on in a way that is not representative of what they believe, sometimes by evangelicals. And so they say, well, Catholics, you know, teach you can sin all week, and then you just go to confession on Saturday and everything's fine. Well, they don't really teach that, but those are straw men. So what do they teach? And so what you want to do is read their their actual documents. There's a book that's been in continual print for about 60 years. It's by Lorraine Bettner, uh, B-O-E-T-T-N-E-R. It's been in print for so long you could go to Amazon, probably find it used for 3 or $4 and get it shipped. And it is still the premier work uh, 60 years later on Roman Catholicism and that he goes through, here's the actual documents. This is what they specifically say and teach. So you're not getting some straw man. And then here's what the scripture says. And so I would probably direct you to that source if you want to get a good grip on all of these things. But in reference to the specificity of your question, start by, A, listening to the message I gave last Wednesday. It's at the website called The Lord's Supper. And then you might want to also go to my series in the Gospel of John, listen to the message of John chapter 6, where I go through these issues uh, contextually, verse by verse by verse on what Jesus said. That's a quick answer, but let's go on to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and while we were answering that one, a call came in, and the caller would like to know if Esau went to heaven or hell. Well, it's a good question, and God is ultimately his judge. Uh, There is some divine commentary on Esau's life when you come to Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And and by the way, let me say parenthetically, when you look at Romans 9, and maybe this is the genesis of the question, because I referenced last week, you know, Isaac and Ishmael. I think you'll meet Ishmael in heaven. Um, Whether or not you'll meet Esau in heaven, people have debated that, much like they debate whether or not you will see Saul in heaven. Um, You know, I think we'll see Saul in heaven. Uh, I think he was a believer. I think he was an Old Covenant believer. And so sometimes under the Old Covenant, uh, there were allowances for the hardness of heart that didn't disqualify the person from necessarily being a member of the kingdom of God. So take King David, for instance. He's a man after God's own heart, and yet the Scripture is specifically clear that he had a number of wives. He wouldn't be considered a believer under the New Covenant. Uh, So there are things that were done by Old Testament saints because of the hardness of heart, because they live on the other side of Pentecost that were allowed, but they were never God's ideal. And so when you come to Saul's life, I think that's what you see. Um, But here is a verse in Hebrews 12, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Uh, And let me just say parenthetically here, there are a lot of believers today who come short of the grace of God, and that they have been saved by grace alone through faith alone, but sadly, um, they are not walking in grace. Um, Paul's admonition to the church at Galatia is he wants us to uh, continue on the same way we started. 
And how do we start? By grace through faith. And that's the way he wants us to continue on. He he doesn't want us to come short. And so in the book of Galatians, he he speaks about those who have um, fallen from grace. He's not talking about having lost their salvation. Uh, that's absolutely impossible. But he is speaking about someone who is not walking in the realm of grace. And that's possible, very possible for a believer today. Any believer can 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 do that. So lest anyone falls short of the grace of God, he's giving this admonition. Uh, we need to get right with God's grace. We need to look to ourselves and guard ourselves from legalism. And, and lest, he says, any root of bitterness springs up in your heart. And bitterness is an awful thing. And when there is unforgiveness in the heart, there's a root of bitterness and it can drive the life. And I think really that's what happened with Esau, and that's why he goes on and he uh, illustrates with Esau. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. And so he's a profane person, I think, that King James renders it. And uh, he's described here as immoral. And he sold his birthright, the opportunity to be used of God for something central, for hunger appetites. And people do that all the time. And and it says there was no place for repentance. It It's not a question of forgiveness, uh, God's forgiveness is always open to the penitent, to the person who has a change of heart, which is what the word repent means, literally to change your mind or your heart. Um, but but Esau, he he could not do this act. There was no room for repentance because once he sold his birthright, something that he despised, it couldn't be undone. So the question becomes, is Esau lost or is is God describing this root of bitterness that had come into his heart and therefore dictated an act of uh, less than godly behavior or, you know, where he had a blip in the screen of life like, um, like David did, like Solomon did, like a lot of Old Testament saints did, or, you know, was this his overall disposition where God says he's just lost? Well, you know, God is his ultimate judge. And again, when you're dealing with Old Testament saints, it's a little more sticky because, again, there were allowances. King David to have five wives today would be considered an unbeliever. But it was allowed because, again, of the hardness of heart under the Old Covenant. Will we meet Solomon in heaven? I I have no doubt. Now, I don't think that he slept with a thousand women. Many of the marriages that he had were politically based, you married women for the alliance that you would then create with that land and so on and so forth. But will we meet him in heaven? Yeah, we will. But again, he would but by no stretch of the imagination be considered a believer today. But the whole point when God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, we need to take that quote from Malachi, and it goes back to Genesis 25, where he's not saying, well, I chose one to go to heaven and the other to go to hell. 
he's saying within your womb are, are two nations. And so Esau became the progenitor of the Edomites, and Jacob carries the promise on, and he becomes the progenitor of the Jewish people. And God chose one over the other. And why would he chose, choose one over the other? Well, among other things, he may have seen the disposition between these two young men, that one potentially had a greater heart to respond to general revelation, namely Jacob, who's later, of course, renamed Israel, than did Esau, who wanted the here and now pleasures of life, and he sold his birthright for that reason. And what he did was a very godless act. It was not admirable at all. Um, is he uh, a man in hell? Well, you're going to have to wait till you get to heaven to find out. 843-525-1859 or email us at tbl or the Bible line, tbl at net. Our next caller read an article about Al Mohler, and she was unclear of his stand on homosexuality. Do you know what Al Mohler teaches on homosexuality? Absolutely. There is no doubt in my mind where Dr. Moeller stands in this issue. He defines marriage between one man and one woman, period. He does not in any way, shape, or form espouse homosexuality. He doesn't even espouse same-sex attraction. Uh, That's the new thing today in evangelicalism is we have these evangelical pastors who say, well, you know, homosexuality is wrong, but if you have same-sex attraction feelings, you can embrace those feelings. And so we have people like Sam Attleberry, who uh, helped a, a conference a couple of years ago called Revoice that was done by the uh, a large uh, PCA church. PCA are your Bible-believing Presbyterians for the most part. But even now within the PCA, they're struggling with this. They've commissioned a study. There's nothing to study these feelings are not neutral. These feelings are uh, need, they have need of being brought under the sanctifying power of God the Holy Spirit. God needs to change someone who is saved out of a, a homosexual lifestyle, and that individual needs to be brought under the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And if there's no willingness to do that, then you've got proof positive that a person has not been born again. It's the same, um, the same truth is, um, could be affirmed for heterosexual lust. If a person is, you know, they're, they're into pornography, they have had one immoral relationship after another, they find Christ as their personal savior, uh, they're born again, they're a new creature, but they still struggle with, hom- uh, with heterosexual lust. What do they do? They die to self, and they learn to let God change the way they think. They make covenants with their eyes. They stop looking at certain things, and they hide Scripture in their heart. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to thy word? Thy word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so Al Mohler is not affirming either same-sex attraction or the homosexual lifestyle. Now, here's the here's the point of Rob, and sometimes, you know, guilt by association, is there are some people that he has rubbed shoulders with that um, he has not officially uh, opposed as of yet, because I think he's a very reasonable man. I've met Dr. Moeller, and I'm very impressed with his life and his character, 
and he's uh, one of these brothers who wants to do everything possible to try to reconcile fellowship on an issue where he feels like someone is off before he breaks fellowship with them. And uh, there's a few people that I think he will end up doing that with. He hasn't. But understand, if you listen to Dr. Moeller's podcasts, and he does three or four every week, um, I haven't listened to many of them. I've probably listened to 10 of them over the last three years. Uh, But they're all very, very well done. And I've read a few of his transcripts from the podcast that he does. And he is clear as can be that he opposes the homosexual lifestyle. And he takes it to the point where he believes that same-sex attraction feelings are not morally neutral, but they need to be brought under the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And if someone is born again, they'll want to do that. Uh, that they cannot go and bear the label gay Christian. So um, so I know sometimes people, there are some websites, and here's the challenge with the Internet, is people go on these websites and they crucify some people, and they've not always done their, their research. And that's why it's really important that before, you know, we jump on the bandwagon just because someone creates this website and they say, well, you know, this person believes such and such, and I think, they don't know this person. How could they come to that conclusion? I know the individual they're talking about. I've spoken with that individual, and that's not what they believe. And yet some people say, oh, you know, it's right here on the international website of the, of the world, uh, the World Wide Web. It, it, it must be true. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible Line, we do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line. Yes, good morning, Pastor Brogy and Rick. Good to speak with you. Thank you. Um, I had a quick question. I was reading Judges 4 and 5 this morning, and, um, you know, I listened to your, your sermons. You know, I'm a member of the Community Bible Church, and, you know, the coming with the female pastorship and the role of men and women, um, how does Judges 4 and 5 and Deborah, you know, Deborah the Judge, reconcile with that um, I guess, with that belief or with that teaching? Well, number one, you know, Deborah was not a preacher. And what you might want to do is I have a whole message on this. And if you uh, click on, uh, go to search the scriptures and uh, do uh, search by scripture and go to First Timothy two twelve through 15. And I did two messages. Actually, I think I did three the last time I did it. Um, but if you go there, what I do is I go through every single passage that people have used to try to argue that um, women can be pastors. And one of the passages that they use is Deborah. But, you know, Deborah was a woman who was sought after for advice, and she would have a word from God. It would be parallel in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5 of a woman who prophesies in church. Can a woman prophesy in church? Yes, she could, because when a woman prophesied in church, and there are different ways the word prophecy is used in Scripture. It's, uh, again, words in some languages can mean one thing in one sentence and in something entirely different in the next. And so when I use the word trunk, do I mean 
an elephant's trunk, the trunk behind a car, the trunk at the base of a tree, or the trunk over a sailor's shoulder. It all depends on the way it's being used in a sentence. And the word prophesy can be used in different ways in Scripture. And one way it's used, it's illustrated in 1 Corinthians 11 that Deborah is doing under the tree is she has a direct word from God. And so a woman would stand up in the Corinthian church and she would literally, in essence, say, thus saith the Lord. She wasn't preaching a sermon. She wasn't delineating what the text that she was given said. She just said it. And that was a very necessary gift as the church was being founded because they couldn't go to Ephesians or Revelation or or the book of Jude, or, you know, Galatians, and find out what God thought on a particular subject, because those books weren't even read yet, uh, written yet. And so someone would stand up, and you had to have a confirmation by two or three witnesses, and the spirits of prophets were to be subject to one another, and the church was to be alert to the fact that deception could easily walk in, and so we were called to test the spirits to see whether they be from God. And so Deborah's really doing what even Philip's four daughters did, as recorded in in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 21. He had he had four daughters that did prophesy. Um, she's doing what Anna did in Luke 2, where she speaks a direct revelation from God. She's doing what Halder did in 2 Kings 22. She's doing what Miriam did in Exodus 15. And I go through each of these individuals, by the way, and we look at them contextually. And, of course, the best commentary that you have on Deborah is in the New Testament in that when you come to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the one who's given the credit for the act of faith is Barak. Not Deborah, but Barak. But what does he do? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And faith basically, as Hebrews 11 delineates, is believing and responding to what God has said. And that's what he does. A word comes through a woman. She's not a preacher. She gives a single word. This godly man responds to it in faith. And God gives the honor, not to her who spoke the word, but the man who obeyed the word in in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 32. So Barak ultimately uh, is the one who demonstrates the, the faith uh, to believe what God has said. So again, people, uh, by the way, I think my wife, uh, if there's any women that are listening, tomorrow she uh, will continue her series to women. And she is, uh, we have Women's Life at Community Bible Church. And if you uh I have missed it. They're all put online, but she usually does four messages in the fall and four in the spring, and she's been dealing with Deborah and JL, and she'll review Deborah and go into JL tomorrow, so you don't want to miss that at Community Bible Church. That will be tomorrow, this last Wednesday in February. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line, and uh, we've got a listener, I believe, in New England. Um, They write... I've been listening to Dr. Brogy's series on finances, and I was hoping to ask a few questions. My husband and I are fellow believers and belong to a strong biblical church here in New England, but unfortunately, they don't offer any form of guidance or classes on finances. My husband and I are in a bit of a predicament and aren't sure how to begin to get out of it financially. We have a lot of credit card debt, of which... uh, 
which is why I did listen to Pastor Brogy at how to begin to dig out of that hole. But we also have student loan debt, and we aren't even sure or why our balance is so high. We've called the lender to see why our loan jumped by $40,000 over what we originally borrowed, and we've been paying since 1999. We owe so much more than what we borrowed. May I ask, do you know of anyone who can assist with situations like this in regards to student loans? At the moment, we are held in bondage by our debt. We just need a little help and guidance, and we aren't sure where to begin. We have thought about selling our house, but with the market right now, we aren't sure that that would be wise since we would be getting a smaller house for what we own our own home. And I don't mean to sound like our house is huge. It's not. Uh, It's a normal-sized colonial, and we have four children along with ourselves living in it. Any help or suggestions would be very much appreciated. We don't want to live chained to our debt any longer. We love the Lord and want to serve Him more, but our debt requires us to keep up with the rat race in order to pay what we owe, thereby limiting our time and potential resources we could have to further His kingdom. I hope this makes sense. Thank you so much for your time. Rick, uh, tell this listener who will be later Uh, listening to my answer, the program that we offer on finances every afternoon here at WAGP. Uh, Yes, indeed. That can be heard here. And I just want to go ahead and tell you the exact uh, It's WAGP.net. Not everyone is aware that this station live streams through the Internet around the world. And that's one of the reasons we get these questions from all these different parts of the country. The other is because of the simple fact that uh, Search the Scriptures broadcasts in a number of different places other than this local market. And the, the name of the program is Money Wise. It's uh, with uh, Rob West and Steve Moore. Okay, so uh, the genesis of that ministry was Larry Burkett, and it, over the years it became Crown Financial Ministries, and now it's Money Wise. You can call Money Wise, and they will give you a financial counselor in the area that you live in up there in the Northeast who will give you some counsel. Now, there's an immediate red flag that comes to my mind, like why on earth did your balance for these student loans go up so dramatically? Something fishy there, something quirky there. Maybe there was some um, line in the in the contract that – if you hadn't paid it off by this certain time that your interest was going to go from 6% to 28%, there's something going on there. Maybe it's a pure clerical error. You can't go by what sometimes uh, they tell you you owe. When I finished paying off my first house, I had a debate with the with the bank that I was finished, and they said I wasn't. And I kept a record of every single check that I wrote, and they were wrong. I wasn't. And so, you know, so you, you just don't assume anything. Uh, people make mistakes, and um, but you need to get out of this debt hole. I am assuming that you're responding to more than just maybe some message where it was a side note, but that you've heard my series on the theology of money or how to manage your money God's way. And my suggestion is if you've not listened to that series of talks, that that would be foundational. That would be a starting point. And so we go through the issue of stewardship, that we're stewards, which basically means it's not your money, it's God's. 
It's not a 90-10% relationship where you give 10% to God and then the 90% is yours to do whatever you want with. No, it's all God's, and we'll give an account for 100%. We go through what the Bible says about giving, what the Bible says about debt, what the Bible says about saving, what the Bible says about investing, what the Bible says about planning. And so it's not like a um, there is some popular... Uh, financial ministries that are being driven a lot on secular uh, radio stations in the country that give you very little spiritual, uh, biblical foundation for why they're doing. Some of the principles that they teach are correct, but they're not giving you a biblical basis. And why is it critical that you have a biblical basis? Because the behavior won't last unless you are convinced that this is actually what God himself says. So you need a plan. You need to, one, be on the same page uh, to know what God says. And again, the course that I offer, it's like a 130-page notebook. So it will take you um, about eight or nine hours to um, watch all the messages. And if you need the notebook that goes with it, you can call, search the scriptures, and they can email you a copy that you can print out for yourself. What we do on this end, if someone is local, and that's not to say that if you wanted to come from New England, we wouldn't do it for you, that if someone goes all the way through the notebook, fills it all out, and there's blanks you have to fill in, and then you take those areas that we've covered and you apply it by creating a budget that mimics what God has taught, then we will sit you down with a financial counselor who will help uh, you with your budget and look at it specifically. And I I used to do it all by myself in the early years of Community Bible Church. When I came, we had about 150 people on Sunday morning, and um, the church was much smaller, but there came a point where I just couldn't do that anymore. I, I just didn't have the time. But there are people who've been trained who do that very thing for us. But when I would do it, and I would say this is true of our counselors today, I I almost never would look through a budget and not find some kind of leakage. So if someone had, say, credit card debt, and that would be the first one you would want to attack would be the credit card debt. Let's get rid of that first. But you do need to address and find out very specifically why this balance jumps so radically. And I would start by calling the people who have your loan and find out why, because it might be a clerical error, it might be some fine line. But if you call this ministry that we suggested money-wise, they'll also put you with a counselor in the area. And sometimes you can go to bat and you can renegotiate some of these things. Now, I'm not one who thinks that, you know, if you've borrowed $30,000 and you owe $10,000 in interest, that uh, you negotiate with that uh, lender uh, to get rid of the principal. Uh, to me, that's stealing. But there are companies that will do that for you, and they'll pay a fee, and the motivation from the lender's side is that sometimes they're convinced, well, bankruptcy is going to happen. But look, when you don't pay people back for money that you've borrowed, it's stealing. And that's what, that's what God says. That's not to say that you couldn't negotiate on the interest, And that might be something that you'd want to get someone to help you with. And if you call MoneyWise, they'll tell you of counselors in the area. But a good counselor is going to look at your budget. And you have a real plan 
when you can tell me the month and the year that you'll be out of debt. And so, for instance, I might find leakage in your budget and say, well, uh, why do you have a smartphone for $140 a month when you owe $8,000 in credit card? Well, you know, it's kind of nice to look at your email during the day. And, well, you could get a flip phone for 30 bucks a month and you could look at your email at home or in other places but not have to have it carried with you. And you could take that additional money and put it towards your debt retirement. So there's real choices you have to make sometimes. Oh, you have a $500 deductible on your car. Why don't you make that 2000 That will allow you to save $400 in the next year. And you could put that towards debt retirement. So you have to have an aggressive plan and that people in the family are agreed upon. Uh, to pay it off. But you can get out of this debt hole with God's help. So my first suggestion to both of you would be tonight, go home, get on your knees and say, Heavenly Father, you know, maybe we haven't been the best stewards of what you've entrusted to us, but we can't unscramble eggs, but we want to really clean this up going forward. So we pray that you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would send us to the right people, that you would give us proper information, and that you would get us out of this debt hole. You know, I had a couple, this was back in the early 90s, and apart from their home mortgage, they had a $128,000 and some change. I'll never forget it. And what I call junk debt, oh, cars, piano, furniture, appliances, it was unbelievable. And I looked at that, and I looked at their salary, and I thought, Lord, this will take a miracle. But I remember them coming up to me in church one day and telling me that they had it all paid off, and now they were beginning to work towards paying off their house. I remember a young Marine, and Marines are always targets. You know, it's sad. These people who come and serve our nation to protect us, uh, they're often targets of outrageous uh, deals, so to speak, where they're paying huge amounts of interest on cars and appliances and furniture. And this young Marine who, he was $28,000 in debt. This was back in the early 90s. And I remember Randy coming up to me. He actually moved, came back. They were on vacation, walked up to me, wanting you to know, Pastor, last month we were 100% out of debt. What God said in his word actually works. So um, get on your knees, ask God for help. If you haven't gone through the course, go through the course, create a budget, and then try to go meet with a financial counselor with what you have. But in the interim, find out what's going on with that student loan. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we have a listener. Uh, They listen to us probably on WVNE, life-changing radio, up uh, in your neck of the woods, just a little bit south of Worcester, in a town called Whitensville. Do you ever hear of it? Sure. All right. Richard writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy. A common objection that Jewish people give about Jesus being the Messiah is that not all prophecies were fulfilled. And I know that that it is that way because Jesus will fulfill all prophecies by his second coming. I was wondering if there's any Old Testament scriptures that point to the Messiah coming twice in order to fulfill all prophecy. Well, there there are, you know, not specifically where a verse says, well, Messiah's going to come the first time, and then when he comes again, and no, it, it's it's interesting, but both comings are found in the Old Testament. You can believe the second coming of the Messiah as it's described for the simple reason that God prophesied 
you know, hundreds of specific predictions concerning his first coming, and every single one of them came true. And by the way, that's one of the ways we know the Bible is the only book that God wrote and that there is fulfilled prophecy. But you have to understand that uh, revelation has been given progressively. So God makes the first promise, really, of a Savior slash a Messiah in Genesis 3.15. It's what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel from the Latin. And so the first good news is introduced that God is going to send a a Savior who the seed is going to crush Satan's heel. And he reveals a little bit more to Abraham, and he shows a little bit more to uh, his purposes through Noah and then through David and and through the prophets. And and listen, when Jesus steps on the scene in time and space, people are still asking questions because for many, the only view of a Messiah they wanted was the second picture because God describes him in the Old Testament in two ways. Like in Zechariah chapter 9, he's described in great humility. Uh, He is coming ultimately to be pierced. Uh, And yet, when you come to Zechariah chapter 14, you see him coming in victory, and he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. Uh, You see him as a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. You see him shortly after that in the latter chapters, the final six chapters of Isaiah, as a sovereign reigning king over all the earth. So both pictures are actually given of the Messiah. How do we know that one is uh, going to follow the other? For the simple reason that God demonstrates that his word is trustworthy. If he fulfilled over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming, and again, prophecy is history pre-written, and, you know, there is no prophecy in the Book of Mormon. You know, the Book of Mormon has all these names and places and peoples and They've searched high and low, South America, North America, all over the world. They, they can't find one single stitch of historical archaeological evidence to show that any of the things they write about are true, whereas the museums of the world are filled with archaeological proof that the places and the names and the people that are spoken of in the Scripture are still uh, are, are very real. I mean, just a couple of years ago, they were finding some seals of some of the names that were written in the book of Jeremiah, and they're on display there in the city of Jerusalem. I mean, they, they're still finding things all the time when the um, uh, some of the Arabs tried to dig underneath the Temple Mount. No one knew what was going on, and then they saw all these dump truck loads of trucks going out. You know, the Israeli government... Uh, took every stitch of dirt that they had, and they sifted through the whole thing. And they, they found things from the first temple period and even the second temple period. It was, it was amazing because it demonstrated the historicity of the Scripture. There is no fulfilled prophecy in the Book of Mormon. There's none in the Vedas. There's none in the writings of Confucius or Buddha or any other religious work, only the Holy Bible. So you can know the second coming is going to unfold for the simple reason that God proved the reliability of his word. But sometimes in a single passage of Scripture, you will find both comings brought together. And so, for instance, Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah, again, he will speak of both, 
uh, separately at times, but he says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's the incarnation. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And by the way, even the rabbis acknowledge that this is a messianic passage, that the governments of the world will rest on the shoulders of the Messiah. Did Jesus fulfill that the first time? No, he didn't. But he's going to. And so sometimes in a single verse of Scripture, um, God will give the whole career of the Messiah and all that will happen. What's kind of interesting, and if you remember that occasion, it's recorded in Luke 4. Uh, I think it starts around verses 15 or 16 of that chapter. Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he, uh, he is given the scroll. And the Bible says that he turns—I'm just going to turn there for a second— he turns to the prophet Isaiah, and uh, again, Isaiah is one of the largest scrolls of the whole Old Testament. Uh, it's a long scroll. It um, is alone longer than all the what we call the minor prophets put together, but Jesus obviously knew the book well enough. Remember, there's no chapter or verse divisions at this point, so he's just kind of fingering it through. He knows approximately when the scroll reaches a a certain thickness in his left hand and a certain thinness in his right hand that he's at the right spot. So you know he knows the scripture. And he took the book of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. I'm reading from Luke 4, now verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 61, what's really interesting is he said, Isaiah writes, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach, to bring good news to the afflicted. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom um, to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops right in the middle of verse 2 of Isaiah 61. And then the rest of the verse says, in the day of vengeance of our God. And so here's a verse that really gives the whole career of Satan, but there's what we often call a 2,000-year comma here when Jesus reads it in Luke 4, because he closed the book, he didn't finish reading verse 2, he sat down, everyone in the synagogues has their eyes glued on him, and uh, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So um, what, what you have to recognize is that there's a progressive dimension to the revelation of God, and I don't mean by that the way the liberal theologians of our day use it, that God is progressively still revealing truth or that God is changing. God is immutable. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But obviously, King David knew more than Abraham did. Abraham knew more than Adam did. And God was unfolding it over the course of time. Add to that, you have typology, Enoch, Noah, a new world, the rapture, Time of trouble, worldwide judgment, millennium, all kinds of ways that you can come to the conclusion on both comings. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. 